Piecing Me Together by Renee Watson, published by Bloomsbury Press. One, Espanol, Spanish language. I am learning to speak, to give myself a way out, a way in. Two, tener éxito, to succeed. When I learned the Spanish word for succeed, I thought it was kind of ironic that the word exit is embedded in it. Like the universe was telling me that in order for me to make something of my life, I'd have to leave home, my neighborhood, my friends. And maybe I've already started. For the past two years, I've attended St. Francis High School on the other side of town, away from everything and everyone I love. Tomorrow is the first day of junior year, and you'd think it was my first day as a freshman the way my stomach is turning. I don't think I'll ever get used to being at St. Francis while the rest of my friends are at Northside. I begged mom to let me go to my neighborhood high school, but she just kept telling me, Jade, honey, this is a good opportunity, one I couldn't pass up. It's the best private school in Portland, which means it's mostly white, which means it's expensive. I didn't want to get my hopes up. What was the point of applying if, once I got accepted, mom wouldn't be able to afford for me to go? But mom had done her research. She knew St. Francis offered financial aid. So I applied, and once I got accepted, I received a full scholarship. So I kind of had to go. So here I am, trying to pick out something to wear that doesn't look like I'm trying too hard to impress, or that I don't care about how I look. St. Francis doesn't have uniforms, and even though everyone says it doesn't matter how you look on the outside, it does, especially at St. Francis. I bought clothes with the money I made from working as a tutor at the rec center over the summer. I offered mom some of the money I earned to help with bills or at least the groceries, but she wasn't having any of that. She told me to spend it on my school clothes and supplies. I saved some of it, though, just in case. Mom comes into my room without knocking, like always. I won't be here tomorrow morning when you leave for school, she says. She seems sad about this, but I don't think it's a big deal. You won't see much of me this week. I'm working extra hours. Mom used to work as a housekeeper at a manual hospital, but she got fired because she was caught stealing supplies. She sometimes brought home blankets and the small lotions that are given to patients. Snacks, too, like saltine crackers and juice boxes. Then, one of her co-workers reported her. Now Mom works for her friend's mother, Ms. Louise, a rich old lady who can't do much for herself. Mom makes Ms. Louise breakfast and lunch and dinner, gives her baths, and takes her to doctor's appointments. She cleans up the accidents Miss Louise sometimes has when she can't make it to the bathroom. Miss Louise's daughter comes at night, but sometimes she has a business trip to go on, so Mom stays. I know Mom isn't just here to tell me her schedule for the week, because it's posted on the fridge. That's how we communicate. We write our schedules on the dry erase board and use it to let each other know what we're up to. I close my closet, turn around, look at her, and wait. I know what's coming. Every year since I started at St. Francis, Mom comes into my room the night before school starts and gives me the talk. Tonight, she's taking a while to get to it, but I know it's coming. She asks questions she already knows the answers to. Have I registered to take the SAT yet? And am I still going to tutor at the rack now that school started? And then she says, Jade, are you going to make some friends this year? Here it is, the talk. Really, Mom? 
Yes, really. You need some friends. I have Lily. You need friends who go to St. Francis. You've been there for two years. How is it that you haven't made any new friends? Well, at least I haven't made any enemies, I say. Mom sighs. I have friends there, Mom. They're just not my best friends. It's not like I go to school and sit all by myself in the cafeteria. I'm fine, I tell her. Are you sure, Mom asked? Because I swear, it's like if you and Lily aren't joined together at the hip, you act like you can't survive. Mom doesn't understand that I want to have Lily to look at when something funny happens, something that's only funny to us. Our eyes have a way of finding each other no matter where we are in a room so we can give each other a look. A look that says, did you see that? But at St. Francis, I don't have anyone to share that look with. Most things that seem ridiculous to me are normal there. Like when my humanities teacher asked, who are the invisible people in our community? Who are the people we, as a society, take for granted? Some girl in my class said her housekeeper. It wasn't that I didn't think she took her housekeeper for granted. It was that I couldn't believe she had one. And then so many of my classmates nodded, like they could all relate. I actually looked across the room at the only other black girl in the class, and she was raising her hand saying, she took my answer. And so I knew we'd probably never make eye contact about anything. And I realized how different I am from everyone else at St. Francis, not only because I'm black and almost everyone else is white, but because their mothers are the kind of people who hire housekeepers, and my mother is the kind of person who works as one. Lily would get that. She'd look at me and we'd have a whole conversation with only our eyes. But now I have to wait till I get home from school to fill her in on the crazy things these rich people say and do. Mom keeps on with her talk. I really wish you'd make at least one friend, a close friend, this year at your school, she says. Then she says goodnight to me and walks into the hallway, where she turns and says, Almost forgot to remind you. Did you see my note on the fridge? You have a meeting with Mrs. Parker during lunch tomorrow. On the first day of school? About what? Mom shrugs. She didn't give me the details. Must be about the study abroad program, she says with a smile. You think so? For the first time in, well, for the first time ever, I'm excited to talk to Mrs. Parker. This is the year that teachers select students to volunteer in a foreign country and do service learning projects. That was the thing that made me want to attend St. Francis. Well, that and the scholarship. When we met with Mrs. Parker, my guidance counselor, I think she could tell I was not feeling going to school away from my friends, but she knew from my application essay that I wanted to take Spanish and that I wanted to travel. So she said, Jade, St. Francis provides opportunities for our students to travel the world. She had me at that. Of course, she didn't tell me I'd have to wait until I was a junior. Mrs. Parker always has some kind of opportunity to tell me about. Freshman year, it was the essay writing class that happened after school. Sophomore year, it was the free SAT prep class that met on Saturday mornings. Saturday mornings. She likes to take me downtown to the Arlene Schnitzer Hall whenever there's a speaker or a poet in town, telling me I should hear so-and-so because kids in other cities in Oregon don't get these kinds of opportunities. I know Mrs. Parker is looking out for me, that she promised Mom she'd make sure I'd have a successful four years at St. Francis. But sometimes I wish I could say... Oh no, thank you, Mrs. Parker. I've had enough opportunities. My life is full of opportunities. Give an opportunity to someone else. But girls like me with cold, dark skin and hula hoop hips, whose mamas barely make enough money to keep food in the house, have to take every opportunity chance we get. Before mom walks away, she says, I'm going to pick up some groceries after I get off work tomorrow. 
Anything you need me to get? Did you see what I added to the list on the fridge? I asked, smiling. Mom laughs. That was you. I thought maybe it was EJ who wrote that. EJ is my mom's brother, but I never call him Uncle EJ. He's 20, so we're more like siblings. He started staying with us when he dropped out of college. Well, let him tell it. He took a leave of absence. But it's been a year, and I haven't heard anything about him trying to go back. Instead, he's busy making a name for himself as a local DJ. Mom walks to her bedroom. Mint chocolate chip ice cream. I'll see what I can do, she says. If I have enough money, I'll get it. Promise. I finish getting ready for school, thinking to myself that I know all about Mom's promises. She does her best to make them, but they are fragile and break easily. 3. Dehar. To leave. The next morning I wake up before the sun, so early that only trucks and people up to no good are on the streets. There's nothing in the fridge but baking soda in the way back, and half-empty bottles of ketchup, barbecue sauce, and mustard in the door. I drink a glass of water, take a shower, get dressed, and leave by 6.30 so I can get to the bus. I ride the 35 through the maze of houses that all look like one another, like sisters who are not twins, but everyone thinks they are. Living here means when people ask, where do you live? And you never say, the new Columbia. They say, you mean the villa? And remind you that your neighborhood used to be public housing for World War II shipyard workers. And they remind you how by the 80s, a lot of those apartments were run down and how really they were just the projects with a different name. At least that's what mom says. She's always telling me, I don't care if they give the hood a new name or not. It's still the hood. Lots of people can't find beauty in my neighborhood, but I can. Ever since elementary school, I've been making beauty out of everyday things. Candy wrappers, pages of newspaper, receipts, ripouts from magazines. I cut and tear and arrange and rearrange and glue them down, morphing them into something that no one else thought they could be. Like me. I'm ordinary too. The only thing fancy about me is my name, Jade. But I'm not precious like the gem. There is nothing exquisite about my life. It's mine though, so I'm going to make something out of it. Not only for me, but for my mom too. Because she's always saying, never thought I'd be here forever. But that's how things turned out. And when she says this, I know she means that if she hadn't had me when she was 16, she would have gone to college. Would have maybe moved away from Portland. Would have had fewer struggles. She never outright blames me for making her life harder than it needed to be. Instead, she pushes me. Hard. Because no one pushed me, she says. One of us has to make it out of here, and I'm her only child, her only hope of remaking herself. Dad saw a different future for himself, too, but unlike Mom, I think I changed him in all the best ways. He's always telling me how I made him settle down, get himself together, and just because me and your mom didn't work out doesn't mean I don't love you, he tells me. He lives with his girlfriend, who I actually like, even though I never tell Mom that. Mom never talks bad about her, but I know I'm not supposed to like this woman who knew my dad had a girlfriend, a daughter, but flirted with him anyway. This woman who is white and everything opposite of my mom, with her college degree and good-paying job, I try to stay out of any talk about dad, his girlfriend, and what happened with him and mom. At least he's in my life. A lot of friends can't say that. Dad calls me his queen, says I'm the best thing that happened to him. I think about this as I ride to school. How am I someone's answered prayer, but also someone's deferred dream? 
The bus moves and stops, moves and stops, making its way through North Portland. We pass the transition blocks, where North Portland becomes Northeast. Within just a block or two, you stop seeing modest apartment complexes and start seeing houses and luxury apartment buildings, restaurants with outdoor patios and shops of all kinds. The bus stops and four people get off. A white girl gets on and goes to sit in the front empty seat she sees. She has dark brown hair pulled back and twisted into a mess of a ponytail. She's thin, so it's easy for her to slide between two people sitting at the front of the bus. She opens a book and disappears into it, never looking up. We enter downtown, and Book Girl is still on the bus. Anyone who stays on after this stop, besides me, is someone headed to work. She looks my age, so I doubt she's got a job to go to. I wonder if she's going to St. Francis. I get off the bus as the same stop as Book Girl. She walks out the front door. I go to the back. I've never seen her before, and I would have noticed if she were taking the bus with me last year. Most of the students at St. Francis live out here, so they walk or drive to school. She's walking fast, too fast for me to catch up to, so I don't get to ask her if she's new. She blends into the flock of students entering the school. There are a few sections of color in the crowd. There's Rose, one of the other black girls here, who I thought I'd become friends with because on my first day, we talked about our braids and swapped ideas for styles. She's a year above me, so we don't have classes together and never have the same lunch period. But whenever we see each other in the hallway, we smile. I should have told mom about her. Then there's Josiah, the tech nerd who somehow in a place like this is one of the coolest, most popular guys in the school. I like him when he's with only me, when I'm tutoring him and drilling him on Spanish vocabulary. When it's us, he's regular, just a black guy who loves to geek out and experiment with making apps and learning coding. He's smart, real smart just not so great at making his tongue roll an R. But when he gets around his white friends, especially the boys, he puts on a voice and uses slang and acts in ways that seem so opposite of who he really is. Josiah stops me in the hallway. Hey, a group of us are going to Zach's Burgers at lunch. You in? Sorry, can't, I tell him. I have a meeting with Mrs. Parker. He doesn't have to know I can't afford to eat out for lunch. Okay, Josiah says, next time. He walks away. For so many reasons, I want to say yes to him. Eating a burger at Zach's would be so much better than eating a turkey wrap from the cafeteria. There's nothing would make me miss that meeting with Mrs. Parker. I can't wait to find out what country we're going to, what service learning project will be. Of everything Mrs. Parker has signed me up for, this one means the most. This time it's not a program offered, something I need, but it's about what I can give. Four, querer, to want. I am sitting in Mrs. Flores' Spanish class, and I see that girl from the buses here, too. Mr. Flores puts the class in pairs, and for a moment, I think he's going to have two of us get together. But instead, I'm partnered with Glamour Girl. Glamour Girl is one of the few black girls in my grade, but she doesn't exchange smiles with me in the hallway. Her real name is Kennedy. But I call her Glamour Girl because every time I see her, she's applying lip gloss or fixing her hair. Right now, her head is buried in her designer book bag. I look at all the things Glamour Girl is taking out of her bag, tossing under the desk. A cell phone, a makeup carrier, a coin purse, the same color as her bag. A small bottle of lotion, two kinds of lip gloss, one with a pink tint, the other clear. 
a debit card, and a small tin of peppermints. I stare at the mints, and my stomach growls, loud. I wish I could silence it. Big girls can't have growling stomachs. Glamour girl curses. She can't find her pen. I'm not surprised. I've never seen her with anything school-related. She puts everything back into her bag except the mints. She opens a tin and takes out one round candy. As soon as she puts it in her mouth, I smell peppermint and my stomach rumbles again. You want one? Glamour girl asks. But she's not talking to me. She's tapping the shoulder of the girl in front of her. Then everyone around us reaches their greedy fingers into the tin, taking out small round candies. Someone passes the tin to me. There aren't any whole ones left. Just peppermint dust and a few that are broken in half. I take two halves and rest them on my tongue. I close my eyes and suck hard, savoring the cool flavor. I give the almost empty tin to Glamour Girl and thank her. I am regretting that we aren't friends. Maybe if we were friends, she would have offered the mince to me first, and I would have a perfectly round one. When the lunch bell rings, I don't even stop at my locker. I go straight to Mrs. Parker's office, where she offers me candy from a jar in her desk. I take a cherry jolly rancher. Like most of the adults in this school, Mrs. Parker is white. I imagine her to be a fun grandmother to three boys in the pictures that she decorates her office. There's a picture of her skating with them at Oaks Amusement Park. Aren't they just the cutest little boys you've ever laid eyes on, she says. Okay, well, I'm biased, but still. The three boys have copper skin and tight, dark brown curls. There's a photo of a girl, who must be her daughter, standing with a brown man. The three little boys gathered around their legs at the bottom of Matoma Falls. Mrs. Parker picks up the photo. My youngest and her husband, she tells me. Then she picks up a framed photo of her grandson at the Winterhawks hockey game. They're all dressed in Winterhawks jerseys, and the logo in the center of their shirts is a Native American with four feathers in his hair and paint on his face. I wonder how a people's culture, a people's history, became a mascot. I wonder how this school counselor and her three grandsons can wear a stereotype on their shirt and hats and not care. Are you a Winterhawks fan? Mrs. Parker asks. No, not really. Oh, too bad. I get free tickets all the time. Let me know if you ever want to check them out. Thank you, I say. Why do people who can afford anything they want get free stuff all the time? Now, let's go to business, Mrs. Parker says. I take a deep breath and prepare to act surprised when she tells me she's nominating me for the study abroad program. She picks up a folder, looks at it, and, like an orator who decides to become improv instead of using her notes, tosses the folder back onto her desk and asks, Jade, what do you want? to eat, to travel with the study abroad program, maybe go to Argentina, to taste asado half off the fire, to lick my fingers after enjoying sweet afajores, the dulce de leche dancing on my tongue, to eat and speak Spanish in Argentina, in Costa Rica, in New York, California, in job interviews where knowing more than one language improves your application to the top of the pile, to give myself a way out. A way in, because language can take you places. Mrs. Parker clears her throat. It's okay if you don't have an answer yet, she says. That's why I'm here, to help you figure it out. To help you get it once you know what it is. She picks the folder back up and hands it to me. The front of the folder shows a group of black women, adults and teens smiling and embracing one another. Woman to woman, 
a mentorship program for African-American girls. Mrs. Parker is smiling, like what she's about to tell me is that she found a cure for cancer. But really, what she has to tell me sounds like more like a honking horn that's stuck. A favorite glass shattering into countless pieces on the floor. Mrs. Parker tells me that 12 girls from high schools throughout the city have been selected to participate in Woman to Woman. Each of us will be paired with a mentor. Look at all the great activities that are planned for you, she says. She takes the folder from my hand and opens it, pulling a sheet titled Monthly Outings, A Night at the Oregon Symphony, Museum Visit at Portland Art Museum, Fun Day at Oaks Amusement Park. Do you have any questions? Mrs. Parker asks. I want to speak up. Ask, what about the nomination for the study abroad program? I want to ask about the day she looked in my eyes and said, St. Francis provides opportunities for our students to travel the world. But instead, I ask, why was I chosen for this? Mrs. Parker clears her throat. Well, uh, selection was based on, um, gender, grade, and, well, several other things. Like, well, um, several things. Teacher nominations um, need. Mrs. Parker, I don't need a mentor, I tell her. Every young person could use a caring adult in her life. I have my mother and my uncle and my dad. You think I don't have anyone who cares about me? No, no, that's not what I said. Mrs. Parker clears her throat. We want to be as proactive as possible, and you know, well, statistics tell us that young people with your set of circumstances are, well, at risk for certain things. And we'd like to help you navigate those circumstances. Mrs. Parker takes a candy out of her jar and pops it into her mouth. I'd like you to thoroughly look over the information and consider it. This is a good opportunity for you. That word shadows me, follows me like a stray cat. I stand up. What happens if I don't participate, I ask. If you do participate and complete the two-year program, keeping your grade point average at a 3.5 or above, you are awarded a scholarship to any Oregon college, Mrs. Parker tells me. A scholarship to college? I sit down, lean back in the seat, and hear Mrs. Parker out. She lowers her voice and talks as if what she's telling me is off the record. You know, my son-in-law grew up in your same neighborhood. He lives in Lake Oswego now. Not a lot of African Americans live there, you know. And, well, he's a grown man, and he's having a hard time adjusting. So, well, I think the school can be hard for anyone, but especially if you don't really have anyone who, you know, you can relate to. That's why I selected a mentor for you who went to this school. Mrs. Parker says, She graduated four years ago, and now she's a graduate of Portland State University. You remind me so much of her, she says. I don't say anything. I've already made up my mind that I'm going to do this but I'm kind of enjoying listening to Mrs. Parker beg a little. Jade, you're a smart girl. Are you really going to pass on a chance to get a scholarship to college? I'll do it, I say. And then, thank you for the opportunity. She hands me a sheet of paper with a list of questions on it. We'll give this to your mentor before you meet so she can learn a little about you, she says. She hands me a pen. I fill out the form. Name, Jade Butler. Favorite color, yellow. Hobbies, collaging. And then there's a question. What do you hope to get out of this program? I leave that one blank. Five, promesa, promise. Mom sent hugs me as soon as I get in the door. She is stretched out on her twin bed, and even though she is resting, I can tell by her face that there is no peace for her. 
not even in her dreams. She did not bother to take off her nylons or her shoes that, says, that she says are more comfortable than clouds. The TV is watching her, so I turn it off. Mom likes to go to sleep to noise. I think the voices keep her from feeling lonely. In the kitchen, there are empty brown paper bags on the countertop, which means there are groceries. I open the door to the fridge. Milk, butter, mayonnaise, bread, eggs, hot dogs. And in the pantry, peanut butter, jelly, cans of tuna, packages of top ramen. And in the freezer, family value size, ground beef, frozen pizzas, and in the way, way back, ice cream. Mint chocolate chip. Six, Historia, History. Lily comes over after school, and over bowls of mint chocolate chip ice cream, we stop, swap stories about our first day. Before we can get into good conversation, EJ comes home, smelling up the whole living room with his cologne. He joins us at the kitchen table, but not before grabbing a spoon from the dish rack and helping himself to my bowl. I give him the meanest look I can muster. I mean, you can't share with your favorite uncle, he says. Get your own. I point to the freezer and move my bowl closer to me. He laughs, goes into the living room, and puts his headphones on and starts bobbing his head. Okay, what were you saying? I ask Lily. She is laughing at the two of us and shaking her head. I was just saying how much I like my history teacher. She's my favorite already, Lily tells me. Why, I ask. She's all about teaching stuff we don't necessarily learn in our textbooks. Like today, we learned about York the black slave who traveled with Lewis and Clark. A black person was part of the Lewis and Clark expedition? Really? Lily tells me. My teacher says he was just as important as Lewis and Clark. She reaches into her backpack and pulls out a worksheet and hands it to me. A picture of York is at the center. He looks strong and confident. He looks so regular, like he wasn't a slave, like he wasn't treated like less than anyone else. Lily says, my teacher told us that York and Sacagawea helped during the expedition. She said Sacagawea helped to translate, and that she was very knowledgeable about the land and could tell which plants were edible and which ones could be used for medicine. What did York do, I ask? Mrs. Phillips said he was a good hunter, and he set up tents and managed the sails. Once, he even saved Clark from drowning. Lily scrapes the bowl and eats the last morsels of melted ice cream. When they needed to decide on where to go next or how to handle a challenge, York got to vote. Sacagawea, too. The first time a black man and a woman were ever given that privilege. Lily tells me that Lewis and Clark came with gifts. And that was a ritual to have a meeting ceremony. At that meeting, Lewis and Clark told the tribal leaders that their land were now the property of the United States and that a man in the East was their new great father. They did not tell them York was Clark's slave. They did not tell them that their new great father owned slaves. I give the worksheet back to Lily. I wonder if the native people saw it coming, I say. Did they know that the meeting ceremony ritual was not so innocent? That it wasn't just an exchange of goods? Lily looks at me. I'm sure they didn't. How could they know this was the beginning of their displacement? But York and such Sacagawea, they knew, I ask. I don't know, Lily says. But even if they did... What could they do about it? I have so many more questions, but Lily is on to the next topic. She starts telling me about all the North Side drama, who's broken up, who's gotten back together. I know so many of them because we all went to middle school together. The whole time Lily is talking, I'm thinking about York and Sacagawea. 
wondering how they must have felt having a form of freedom, but no real power. 7. Arte. Art. Lily has been gone for at least two hours. EJ is in the living room, turning the sofa into his bed. I have the headphones so I can block out the TV show he's watching. One of those real-life murder mysteries. He has the volume up so loud, I'm sure the neighbors can hear. I'm sitting at the kitchen table, which is really a folding card table someone gave us a year ago. It's not that sturdy or wide or long, but it is enough. Tonight, it is holding scraps of paper, the 35 bus schedule, and old copies of St. John's Review, our community newsletter. I am ripping and cutting, gluing and pasting, rearranging, reality, redefining, covering, disguising. Tonight, I am taking ugly and making beautiful. I am still thinking about what Lily told me about York. I'm thinking about the walks that I've taken through North Portland and all of the signs that mark the journey of Lewis and Clark. I've seen these signs my whole life. Lewis or Clark pointing into the distance, the other one standing with his gun. York is not there, neither is Sacagawea, or the native people who are already there. I think about Mrs. Parker, how she is a black son-in-law smiling at me from a frame, how proud she is of her free passes to the Winterhawks games, how she wants me to have a mentor, how she's always ready to give me an opportunity, a gift, like what she is telling me is she comes in peace. Eight, Algo and Camun, something in common. The book girl gets on the bus again. She sits in the same seat, reading the same book. I watch her as we ride to St. Francis. A man gets on the bus, his cell phone in hand, and he is playing music for the entire bus, holding his phone up like it's an 80s boombox and singing along. And he can't sing, not even a little bit. It's too early for this. The book girl looks around the bus and her eyes meet. She smiles, the kind of uncomfortable smile people give one another in these kinds of situations. I smile back. The louder he sings, the bigger her eyes get. And then, even though there are plenty of empty seats, he stands right in front of her as if to serenade her. She looks at me with her eyes, asks, is this really happening? I motion for her to come and sit next to me. I pick my bag up from the aisle seat and set it on my lap. She comes over full of disbelief and laughter. Thank you for rescuing me, she whispers. Once the man gets off the bus, we burst into laughter. I'm Jada, tell her. Samantha, she says. My friends call me Sam. How do you like St. Francis? She looks at me with suspicion. I go there too. We have the same Spanish class, I tell her. What? Oh God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. It's okay. So you take the bus every morning, Sam asks? Every morning, I tell her. I live in North Portland. And I thought I lived far from St. Francis, Sam says. I live close to Pensula Park. Looks like we'll be bus buddies. Yeah. As we ride to school together, I make sure to tell her the shortcuts to get around the crowded hallways. I let her know which teachers she should stay away from at all costs and which ones to get to know, even if she doesn't have their classes. Sam tucks her hair behind her right ear and clears her throat. Any tips about lunch, she asks. I eat in the cafeteria, I answered. I don't tell her that my meals are free and part of my scholarship package. I have to eat in the cafeteria too, Sam says. I mean, I don't have to, but, well, she doesn't finish her sentence. She doesn't have to. 
Meet me at the sandwich bar for lunch. We can eat together, I say. Okay, thanks. The bus stops and we get off. Sam is full of more questions about St. Francis. I am full of questions about her. I wonder what Sam is exiting from. She must be coming from something. Nine. Esperar. To wait. September has come and gone, and my daily routine is riding the bus in the morning and eating lunch with Sam. Depending on what I have to do after school, we go home together, too. But today I can't, because today is the day I meet my mentor. I have to take a different bus after school to go to the first woman-to-woman meeting. It's at a library in northeast Portland. When the dismissal bell rings, I make my way to Sam's locker before I leave. Sam is looking in a mirror, trying to fix her unfixable hair. Her locker is full of pictures of her cat, Misty, who she found in the rain. Owners definitely look like their pets. Sam's thick hair sheds all over the place. Her eyes are big and full and piercing. Her mouth thin and overshadowed by her cheeks. She swoops her hair behind her ear. Ready to meet the woman who's going to change your life? I laugh. We walk outside and stop at the corner. At least someone notices you need someone to talk to. It could be worse. You could be me. No one ever thinks I need anything, Sam says. The light changes. She walks away so fast I can't ask her what she means by that. Can't ask her what it is she needs. When I get to the library, groups of women are huddled in circles, mingling and making small talk. The woman at the front desk checks me in and hands me a name tag. I print my name in green marker and stick the tag to the left side of my chest. The woman scrolls her finger down the list. Jay Butler? Let's see. Your mentor hasn't arrived yet, she tells me. I'm sure she'll be here soon. Her name is Maxine. Okay. The woman hands me a folder. This is all you need to know about woman to woman. It has our schedule for mentor-mentee outings, a handbook that goes over expectations, and lots of resources for you. Thank you. Help yourself to refreshments, the woman says. She points to long tables that have been pushed together to hold fruit and cheese trays, chips and dip, cookies and drinks. Before heading to the snack table, I walk to the back of the library and claim my seat. Two rows from the last. I put my jacket on the back of a folding chair and set the folder down. I walk over to the table and put five cookies on a napkin. Looking around to make sure no one is watching, I fold the napkin, go back to my seat, where I slip the cookies into my backpack. I do this two more times, taking chips and grapes, strawberries and more cookies, and sneak them into my bag. This is something I learned from Mom. Whenever we go out to eat, we usually have dinner at an all-you-can-eat place, like Izzy's or Old Country Buffet. Once we're full and ready to go, Mom takes foil out of her bag and discreetly wraps up food for us to take. On my last trip to the table, I make a plate to eat for now. When I get back to my seat, a girl is sitting next to my chair. Hi, she says. I'm Jasmine. Jade, I tell her. I notice no one is sitting next to her. Have you met your mentor, I asked. She's not here yet, Jasmine tells me. Mine either. At least I'm not the only one. A woman stands at the front of the room and calls everyone's attention. Good afternoon. My name is Sabrina. I'm so honored to kick off another cohort of mentors and mentees, she says. I am the founder and executive director of Woman to Woman, and I started this program because I believe in the power of sisterhood. We girls are often overlooked as if our needs are not important. And, well, I got tired of complaining and wanted to do something about it, Sabrina says. She has a small, high-pitched voice. She's tall and thin in the darkest shade of black. Her hair is braided up in tiny singles and pinned up in a bun. 
As Sabrina is talking, a woman walks in quietly, closing the heavy door behind her so it doesn't make too much noise. She stops at the table to sign in and write her name on the name tag. She looks regal and carries herself in a way that makes me sit up in my seat. Our eyes meet and she smiles. The greeter at the table looks over my way too and points. I can't tell if she's pointing at me or Jasmine. Once the woman gets closer, I see her name tag says Brenda. She whispers something to Jasmine and sits next to her. Am I really going to be the loser girl who mentor stood her up? Sabrina continues to her welcome speech. There is an old adage, she says. You can give a man a fish and feed him for a day. You can teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. She pauses and lets the meaning sink in. Well, I like what Pedro Nogara has to, had, has to add, he says. Don't stop there, he says. Help her to understand why the river is polluted so she and her friends can organize to get the river clean and make it possible for the entire community to eat too, Sabrina says. She pauses again for a moment and then a wide, compassionate smile stretches across her face. Young women, this is what this mentorship program is all about. We'll have fun, yes, but we'll also discuss some of the distractions and barriers to success and hopefully gain strategies for overcoming them. Then she smiles. But first, the fun. Sabrina asks everyone to stand. Let's all make a big circle, please. Mentees, please stand next to your mentors. I look around the room one more time and watch each pair join together, laughing and talking, getting to know one another. Maxine still isn't here. Some mentor. Sabrina says, first we'll have everyone go around and say their names. But to add a little twist to it, say your name with a word that describes you and that begins with the letter of your first name. Sabrina steps forward. Okay, I'll go first. Silly Sabrina, she announces. The next person says, hilarious Hillary. And the woman next to her, bookworm Brenda. I'm thinking of names for my mentor. Missing Maxine. Mediocre Maxine. Mean Maxine. This is stupid. I'm ready to go. I look back at the table and the greeter woman isn't there anymore. I take my jacket off the back of the chair. I was saving, grab my backpack, and sneak out before anyone notices that no one came for me. I walk to the bus stop, thinking about the fish in the river Sabrina was telling us about. I don't really want to learn about the polluted river. I want to move where the water is clean. And I don't want to play childish getting-to-know-you games. If I'm going to do this program, I want to get something out of it. As I wait for the bus, some man with holes in his jacket and a bottle in his hand comes up to me and says, You got a number, Jade? How does he know my name? The man's eyes are looking at my breasts. I look down. Great. I'm still wearing the stupid name tag. I pull it off, ball it up, and put it in my pocket. That's not your name anymore. He steps closer to me. That's fine. You don't want to be Jade anymore? I'll call you whatever you want, he says. He leans in as if he's going to kiss me. I step back, tell him to stop. I walk away, leaving the drunk man yelling and cursing. There's no bus in sight, so I decided to walk a few blocks to the next stop. By the time I get home, it's dark and raining. EJ is already turning the sofa into his bed, and Mom is on her way to Ms. Louise's house. She's staying there for three nights while Ms. Louise's daughter is out of town. Mom looks at me with her knowing eyes. She can tell I'm upset. She always knows how I'm feeling, even when I don't know how to put it into words. She is good at reading minds, reading the room, and having a feeling that just won't go away. Like the night EJ's best friend Alan was killed. Mom kept saying she had this feeling, a feeling that something bad was going to happen. She kept calling EJ's cell, but he didn't answer. 
I thought she was flipping out for no reason, but later that night, we got the call that EJ and his friend had been shot. EJ was okay, barely grazed on his arm. Nate was wounded badly, and Alan died at the scene. Nothing's been the same since then. I think mom only hears what she wants to hear, sees what she wants to see when it comes to her baby brother. Mom knows EJ is not fine. He's not working a full-time job, and that money he makes from DJing and selling mixtapes isn't going to sustain him. Mom asks him all the time, are you looking for a job? He says yes, and she believes him. She asks, are you okay, EJ? What happened to you was traumatic. Maybe you should talk to someone. But EJ says he is fine, and Mom believes him. I wonder how she could get that feeling that night and know her brother was in danger when he was miles away and not know he's in danger while he's right in front of her face. Mom looks at me in the eyes. What's wrong, she asks. How did it go? She didn't show up, I tell her. What do you mean she didn't show up? Mom grabs her umbrella from the bucket by the door. I just stand there. Does anyone know your mentor didn't come? No, I left. Well, Jade, you should have said something. Why? Well, don't you care that she didn't show up? You need to let whoever is in charge know that... I couldn't just interrupt the event, Mom. Plus, Sabrina will know when she checks the sign-in sheet. I don't need to say anything. You have to start speaking up for yourself. I don't know why you're so shy. You need to... Mom, it's after seven already, I tell her. This is my way of reminding her that if she doesn't leave now, she'll be late for work. It's my way of telling her I don't need a lecture right now. She kisses me on the forehead. Love you. Love you too. Think about what I said, please, Mom adds as she steps outside. She opens her umbrella and walks down the steps. I go to my room and try to do my homework, but instead my mind keeps drifting off to what Mom said. The thing is, I don't think I'm shy. I just don't always know what to say or how to say it. I'm like mom in so many ways, but not when it comes to things like this. She's full of words and bites her tongue for no one. I wish I could be that way.